as we prepare to read our scripture, you need to put your finger in two different places. We're going to be in Malachi 4.2, which is page 1002 in your uh, pew Bibles, and also Luke 5.27-32, which is 1077. So that's 1002, put your finger in there, and 1077. Or if you have one of those electronic gadgets, you probably can turn right to it unless you've got a slow internet connection. Malachi 4.2 But for you who rever my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. And then Luke 5.27-32 through 32. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. May the Lord add His blessings to the reading of His Word. Welcome back to the next installment of the series, Me and God, as we talk about um, these metaphors that God has given us that describe and answer the question, the ultimate question of who is God and what does he have to do with me? And we've found that God has given us a whole assortment of word pictures that that describe our relationship to God, that give us insight into what God is like and, and how our relationship with him works. And and uh, so we've, we've looked at things like the potter and the clay and the vine and the branches, right? The bride and the groom. Uh, and so we've looked at different metaphors and, and over the next, uh, this week and, and next week we'll kind of wrap this up. Today we're talking about the doctor and patient relationship. And then next week we'll talk about uh, a metaphor that is kind of rooted in the Christmas story. And so it'll kind of, the, our series finale will kind of tie in with Christmas, the Christmas season. Uh, and then after that series, we'll have a couple, uh, just a little short little Christmas mini-series uh, that we'll do. But So we have that to look forward to. But anyhow, we today are talking about me and God are like a patient and a doctor. And that's, you know, some of these metaphors we've looked at, they show up all throughout Scripture time and time again. You know, the last one we looked at, the bride and groom, we had to take two weeks for it because the Old Testament talks about it a lot and the New Testament talks about it a lot and they talk about it in different ways so we took two weeks to look at it uh, this one really just shows up in one place that Jesus talks about it but, and that's where he uses the word doctor but when you broaden that up and you talk about God as our healer oh my goodness, where do you begin? You know, and, and that's from, again, from beginning to end God as our healer is talked about and so today we look at patient and doctor God and I are like that so as we do that you know, it, and I was just thinking about 
doctors and patients, and we've had a lot of experience with that lately. <laughs> and uh, so I was kind of just thinking back to, to uh, some of our experiences, and, and one of them, while Julie was in the hospital, you know, she had, uh, these, are, these make me sound smart, so I like to say them from time to time, she had a pulmonary embolism because she had hyperemesis gravidarum. <laughs> You gotta love these medical terms, right? <laughs> Would have never known these terms if we hadn't been through some of this stuff. And uh, and, and her story, as many of you know, is, is pretty phenomenal. And just the what God did on her behalf. And if you didn't get to read a blog post that she wrote uh, a few weeks back as she came out of all that um, struggle, then then it's worth reading. And in fact, we have some copies of it. I'm not sure if they made it out of the secretary's office, but if one of our ushers can check sometime before the end of the service then, then maybe a couple ushers can be available to pass those out if you haven't seen it um, you can take one home with you and take a look at it it's, I think it will encourage your faith and uh, it, it was well written because she's awesome but it was also just an incredible story of what God did in her life and in our lives And one day though we were uh, sitting on, on the fifth floor we got to try out different floors of the hospital and we were on the fifth floor and she was kind of in between, you know, when we first got to the hospital, the big concern was pulmonary embolism because that one can end you, you know. And so they were wanting to take care of that first. But the kind of the root problem they believe kind of caused that was the hyperemesis, which is like severe morning sickness, 24-7, bedridden, you know, really unusual thing. And so... On the fifth floor, we were kind of in between, you know, of the concern about the pulmonary embolism and the concern about the hyperemesis. And her OBGYN, Dr. Pennebaker, came in one day and said, I really want to ask you to consider trying a steroid treatment for the hyperemesis. Now, we had never heard of that. And, of course, every time they tell you about a medication, they tell you about the risks that it carries to the baby. And at this point in the hospital... If it wasn't mandatory, <laughs> we were kind of just tired of hearing about the risks. And it felt, it, you know, when you're in that moment and each day they're telling you about new risks, it starts to feel like, you know, this baby doesn't have a prayer of turning out normal, you know, because we've just taken so many medicines. And, uh, and everything that they do, they say, well, this carries a risk. And, and so that day in the hospital room, we just said, no, we don't really want to try something else you know, just some experiment that is also going to carry risk. And uh, so a few days later, her sickness was worse. And the doctor came back again and said, are you sure you don't want to try this? And we finally relented and we tried it. And it was a huge difference maker for Julie. And, and she was able to go back home. And it was still kind of a long road to normalcy. But it was a just night and day difference that it made for her. And I got to thinking, you know, how we're sometimes, I think all of us are a little bit reluctant sometimes to follow the doctor's lead on things, you know, to listen to our doctors. Uh, and and we later our doctor sat down with us and said, uh, after we had been through all this, she said, oh, that day that you turned that down, I was just heartbroken because I really believed it could help you so much. And, and I'm so glad you ended up doing it. And, you know, good doctors, their hearts break. You know, when they see something that could help, 
and, and you know, we're not willing to do it for whatever reason, things like that. You know, there's a lot of reasons that sometimes we don't like to listen to our doctors now. Well, I mean, one, not all doctors are good doctors, right? And uh, a lot of us have been burned by a doctor at some point. Not literally burned, maybe literally burned. Uh, but <laughs> that would definitely give you trust issues. But, uh, you know, we know somebody who's had an experience with a doctor where, you know, the advice wasn't good. And, and so that's part of it. But I think a bigger part of it is we just like to be in control, don't we? We know better even though we didn't go to school for it. And, uh, I mean, maybe you've heard the story of Steve Jobs, right? Who was diagnosed with cancer. And his doctor told him, you know, here's the aggressive treatments we need to do for this. If we, you know, we caught it at this point, let's get on top of it. Let's knock it out. Surgery, treatments, you know, the whole nine yards. And, and Steve Jobs knew better. And he wanted to try acupuncture first. And he wanted to try... Um, alternative methods and juices and you know these different I don't know what all he tried you know probably meditation and who knows what it didn't work and by the time he came back and said let's do treatment it was too late but you know that's how a lot of us you know maybe we wouldn't all sign up for acupuncture to treat our cancer but we all at some point or another you know we have that tendency we want to be in control we know better than our doctors usually and when it's a good doctor, boy, I'm sure that's frustrating and heartbreaking for them to see people go through things that maybe they wouldn't have to go through. And I think the same is true of the doctor that we're going to talk about today. And his heart breaks as well when we don't do what could save us. Or when we don't follow the doctor's orders as closely as we should, etc., so we're going to dive into this metaphor a little bit and see what it means for God, Jesus, to be the doctor and us to be the patient. We looked at two passages of scripture that Dale read for us a few minutes ago. And the first one was found in your Old Testament of your Bible. It happened before Jesus, about 400 years before Jesus. In fact, it was probably on the last page of your Old Testament or right there about. And it's kind of the last prophet, Malachi. The last prophet before Jesus came. Before John the Baptist showed up to be the prophet that would escort in Jesus' ministry. And Malachi was kind of the last guy. After that there was 400 years of silence. That's a long time. I mean, our country's only been around... You know, we're going on, whew, what is it now? We're getting close to 250, 240-ish, something like that. So, I mean, you think about to the beginning of our country, seems like a long time. We're talking longer than that, 400 years, where the people of God didn't have a prophet in the sense of an Isaiah or a Hosea or all those prophets that we read about in our Old Testament. And during that time, they were awaiting a Messiah. And part of the reason they were awaiting it is because people like Malachi prophesied that a Messiah would come. See, Malachi was at a, he was in a season of life. You know, a lot of those prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, the, the prophets we read about and from the most, they stood and they said, Israel, you're going in the wrong direction. God is going to exile you from this land. And that happened. 
The temple was destroyed. They were uprooted and taken out of Israel for about 70 years. And then the people came back and they began to rebuild. And there was a remnant that remained and came back and began to rebuild Jerusalem and Israel and the temple. And, and that's the season of life in which Malachi wrote. A season in which God's people had returned and yet all things were not right still. And there were still warnings to be given to the people. But there was also still hope to be offered to the people. And that verse that we read from Malachi offered hope. It talked about a sun of righteousness rising with healing in its wings. That's kind of a mix of metaphors, isn't it? The sun doesn't usually have wings that we know of, but um, we'll talk about that in a minute. So there's this sense of hope at the end of the Old Testament, of expectation. And then we read a passage from Luke, uh, one of the Gospels in our New Testament. And it's, a, it's an account that is shared by two other books in our New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give the account of Jesus calling Matthew to be one of his disciples, one of his apostles, one of the twelve, one of the inner circle. And this is an odd choice for Jesus to choose Matthew because... Matthew, I mean, probably, probably he wasn't even popular, a popular choice with the inner circle because he was a tax collector. Now, we can all understand that because who likes the IRS, right? I mean, I don't even think people who work for the IRS like the IRS, right? And so we can kind of get that. But this is really on a whole nother level than just tax collector the way we think of it. For the people in Jesus' day, the tax collectors were traitors. They, had, they were working for the Romans, the oppressors, the enemy. These were fellow Jews who had signed up to work for the enemy. And not only that, they were getting rich off of it. So they were helping the enemy collect their money. <laughs> and not only that, they were basically stealing. Because here's how it worked. Rome said... Mr. Tax Collector, I will take Matthew, for example, because that's who Jesus called, and Matthew, or Levi, was a tax collector. And so, Matthew, we need X amount of dollars from you for Caesar's treasury, okay? So we expect this much from you. So Matthew had to collect at least that much. But if he could collect more, he could keep it. And so the tax collectors became pretty wealthy dudes, and they were lining their own pockets with people's money, their fellow Jews, while collecting money for the enemy. So you can see <laughs> that they weren't very popular. They were considered a sinner in their own class of sinner, okay? Uh, you know, if, if Dante's Inferno had been written back then, uh, where there's different levels of hell, there would have been a special level just for tax collectors, okay? They did not like these guys. And so Jesus chooses one of them to be in his inner circle. Big deal. Not only that, but after he chooses and calls out Matthew, Matthew invites Jesus to a party at his house with all of his tax collector ilk. <laughs> all, right? all the people who he associated with that are grouped in with that company that everyone considered, all especially the religious elites considered to be despicable sinners of the worst kind. And Jesus shows up at the party. And these religious folks, they say, uh, why are you doing this, Jesus? 
Why in the world would you associate yourself with people like this? And that's when Jesus offers this statement. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. It's kind of a loaded statement. I think there's a little bit of sarcasm in the statement because uh, if you read much of what Jesus thought about the religious leaders of his day, he didn't really think they were healthy, did he? (laughs) They they were about the sickest people around. Uh, But he says this, you know, because of course they think they're very healthy, right? It's also interesting because Jesus... You know, I think that the, the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the different ones, they viewed Jesus as kind of a lesser peer. He was a teacher of the law as well, but he was kind of rogue, you know, <laughs> teacher gone rogue. And so um, they kind of considered him a peer, but in this, Jesus seems to kind of group them into the patient group. You know, hey, I didn't come to hang out with you guys. I came to hang out with the patients that need the doctor. So Jesus is the doctor. Everyone else is a patient. So it's kind of a big statement. Bold statement. And of course, it's very insightful to Jesus' mission, isn't it? Why he came, why he was there, what, how he viewed his purpose on this planet for the time that he was given. It's interesting, too, that this account that's listed in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Each of those Gospels give this same account and adjacent to this account of calling Matthew and Jesus talking about how the it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. Right adjacent to it are accounts of Jesus healing people. Lame or paralyzed people that can't walk or a woman with a bleeding problem that no doctor could figure out but Jesus healed her. A little girl who died and Jesus raised her back to life. Right associated with this calling of Matthew and Jesus' statement. This metaphor of the doctor. We have these instances of him physically healing people. Now I found this just too interesting to pass up. I I need to share it with you. And this is a big reason why we read that passage in Malachi 4.2. Because um, I read this uh, this week and, I, and I'd heard it before and I just found, I find it immensely interesting. This passage in Malachi, it says, The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Well, I've read that it was the popular belief in Jesus' day that when the Messiah showed up, one of the signs of the Messiah would be that when people touched his garment, they would be healed. Where did they get that from? Um, I don't know for a fact that I, that's just what I read, um, but it seems plausible when you consider this prophecy and pair it with uh, what we read about Jesus' ministry. And I'll show you what I'm talking about. The healing in its wings is significant because Jewish people um, in Malachi's day and Jesus' day and still, I guess, today, they wear what's called a talit. And this is a kind of like a prayer garment that they drape over their head or over their shoulders. And it has, you can see, like fringe or tassels tied, knots at the bottom that are reminders of God's law. There's lots of reminders 
in Judaism. Reminders, physical reminders, things that you wear and that, to remind you of God's laws. And this is one of them. And those edges of the garment were called wings. And so people began to believe that when the Messiah showed up, then people who touched, there would be healing in his wings, if that makes sense. So then we read about that account. We read about that account where Jesus probably dressed something like that, right? With this garment, is walking through a crowd, and that woman with the bleeding issue that the doctors couldn't figure out, touches the edge of his garment and is healed. Then you also read in Mark that this was not that out of the ordinary, apparently. Because people begged him, the crowds that would come and see him, would beg him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, his garment. And all who touched him were healed. So it's just, it's an interesting thing that there's, the, in a sense, this literal fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi 4.2, where it says the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and as people touched the wing of his garment, they were healed. It's pretty incredible. But I think it's safe to say also that when Malachi wrote that prophecy, about the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in its wings, he was not just talking about physical healing. And it's abundantly clear that when Jesus talks about being our doctor, that he's not talking about physical ailments, even though physical healing was a major part of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus viewed his healing ministry as a sign of his kingdom and a, a sign of his legitimacy as the Messiah, as the coming king. People running, I just want to comment on the physical healing thing for a minute before we move into uh, what can we do with this metaphor and how can we apply it because I think it's becoming kind of a hot topic in our culture, in church culture, this physical healing thing. There's you know, it's, it's, I think all of us sometimes, when we read the stories and the accounts of Jesus and the early church and we read these miraculous healings and we, and we ask the question, the fair question, why don't we see this in our day and time? Is our faith not strong enough? What, what's the difference here? And in reaction to that question sometimes, a lot of believers find themselves drawn to the groups in the church that promote and teach what's called divine healing. Uh, but divine, there's different brands of divine healing, right? And so, uh, you know, some of the what's becoming popular right now is, is people go to, whether it's a conference or it just, you know, maybe it, you know, a pastor might go to a conference and then bring it back to his church or so forth and so on. And there's popular groups that have become popular through worship cells, like you may have heard of the band Jesus Culture. And they're a worship band nowadays that's very popular. And they're associated with a church out of California called Bethel Church. It's a very influential church. And they do divine healing conferences. And there's other churches like them that have a lot of influence. And people come to these conferences and learn about divine healing. And they come back to their churches, even churches like ours, Sister Church of God congregations, and, and also you know, Pentecostal churches. And all there is no church exempt from this because... 
It's kind of part of the prosperity gospel that teaches that everybody is entitled in a sense to, you know, that God wants everybody to be well and whole and prospering now. And, and that's, who wouldn't want to hear that, you know? And, and so this is something that grows out of the fair question, why don't we see that now? But the answer then ends up, doesn't look anything like what I read about Jesus' ministry. And so I would just caution you against Anytime you see something, it's not used to, we'd see it in like a Benny Hinn conference, right? Or something like that. Um, But now, I mean, it shows up in lots of places because it's becoming popular right now. And I just want to caution you against anything that doesn't look like what Jesus was doing in the first place. We can have the discussion about, you know, why things look different now than what Jesus was doing. and, and And should it look like what Jesus was doing? That's a fair conversation to have. But when we have things going on that that don't look anything like Jesus' ministry. I mean, first of all, one of the problems I have with it is is it ignores the fact that Jesus didn't heal everybody. He didn't. I mean, consider just the one account that we have of of Jesus healing the lame man beside the pool of Bethesda. We're told that people in droves came to the pool of Bethesda. And whoever made it to the pool when the waters were stirred first, they were healed. You know, that's why people camped out. And Jesus walks through that crowd. I mean, you can see him almost stepping over people that are laying there to go and heal that one man that we're told about that he healed. Jesus didn't go around healing anybody and everybody. And so anything that teaches that everybody present should be healed of anything ailing you doesn't seem to match up with Jesus' own ministry to me. And second of all, when I see you know, the way it's done a lot of times, it seems very theatrical to me. It seems almost like a, uh, more like a, one of those old West medicine shows, you know, with the snake oil or whatever, uh, you know, step on up and be healed, you know, uh, and that's kind of how, I mean, have you seen those deals, you know, where, where the pastor or whoever it is that's up front says, you know, is there anyone here with a back problem? Come on down and be healed. Is there anyone here with, you know, a bladder problem, <laughs> you know, and come on down and be healed, you know, and Someone that has trouble walking or someone that's struggling with depression. Come on down and, and, you know, and you're healed in the name of Jesus. And it's a, again, that doesn't look to me anything like Jesus' ministry or the ministry of the apostles. I, I've never read about Jesus saying, is anyone in the crowd struggling with, you fill in the blank, come on down and be healed. Instead, we read about people coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, would you heal my daughter? Jesus, Lord, I want to see again. And Jesus, seeing their faith, often healed them. And so when I see those things, it makes me a little bit nervous. And I want to caution you against, um, I've cautioned you before against the prosperity gospel that teaches that everybody should be well and whole and prospering now. Because that's not biblical In fact, Jesus and his followers often suffered the most in this world. But it's our belief that all will be made right and that we're not trying to store up treasure here, are we? But in heaven. That's not to say that God doesn't heal today. That there is not divine healing 
today. It's just not going to be everybody right now all the time. So we continue like the early church to pray for divine healing and to pray for God's will to be done in people's lives. But we're not going to be in the business of manufacturing miracles instead of staying focused on the mission of Jesus which was to seek and to save that which was lost to call sinners to repentance. This was his mission, the mission of the doctor as stated by himself. And that's what we're going to stay focused on as a church. Amen? So, if Jesus is concerned as our doctor with more than just our physical well-being, I mean, after all, he said, what good is it for you to gain this whole world but forfeit your soul? If that's of what is most important to, uh, to Jesus, then, then how does this healing, this spiritual healing, take place? How does he accomplish this? And see, we know what those folks in Galilee did not know on that day when he spoke of being the doctor come for the sick. What we know is that this same Jesus, this doctor, would find the remedy himself by giving up his own life and being raised again to life. We have that benefit, that knowledge. We have the accounts of the ones who witnessed it to be able to stand and say, this is how Jesus brings healing. You've got some blanks on your note card today. The first one, how does the doctor bring healing to our problem? Maybe it begs the question first of what is the problem? And so there aren't blanks on your card for this. Maybe you want to write it on the back or something. But the problem is sin. The sickness that we're dealing with as humanity is sin. That's what we believe. And sin at its core, at its root, is a rejection of God. It's not giving God the credit that He's due. It's doing things our way instead of God's way. And the symptom, there's many symptoms of sin, I guess you might say. The result of sin is fatality. 100%. Without the cure, Sin is fatal. That's what scripture teaches us time and again. So every person born on this earth since the fall of man, we believe, is born with a fatal disease called sin that rises up in our life. We're bent towards rejecting God's way and doing it our way. And the result of that is inevitably death. So what is the doctor's medicine? The doctor's medicine is grace. The grace that sent Jesus to the cross on our behalf. The grace, you know, the medicine works by when we have grace in our life, it begins to kind of draw out the poison of sin from our life with the blood of Christ. This medicine of grace. 
draws out the poison that's killing us. The doctor's medicine is grace. But have you ever noticed when you go and you get medicine, you know, a prescription, that it always comes with the doctor's orders on how to use the medicine, right? It always says, uh, you know, take it less in such a way. And if you take it wrong, I mean, it could end you, right? <laughs> you know, if you, if you take it wrong, you know, if you just take the whole bottle at once and don't read the instructions, that could be bad. So the, doctor, the doctor's medicine always comes with the doctor's orders. So I think it's worthwhile that we look at what are the doctor's orders in this case. And thankfully, Jesus gave us the doctor's orders. See, when we look at what Jesus said in this metaphor that he builds, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, he could have ended the sentence right there, and that would have been a parallel metaphor. You know, he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. I've not come to call the righteous, but it's the sick, the sinners. That completes the metaphor. But Jesus said, he's coming to call the sinners to Repentance. To repentance. And so the doctor's orders are repentance. In other words, this is how grace works appropriately. Is we say, God, I see that I've been living wrong. And I repent from that. I want to turn from that. I want to turn to your way of life. And that's the way that grace works properly. That's how it does its work. Through repentance. Now, something worth noting. As soon as you're moved from the sick category to the healthy category, as soon as you move from sick unto death to healing unto life, then you are no longer the mission. Did you notice that? Jesus' mission was to come for the sick. The doctor is there for the sick people. And so as soon as you move from the camp of the sick to the healthy, then you're no longer the mission. That doesn't mean that you don't matter. In fact, you matter a lot. He paid a high price to heal you, didn't he? You matter a lot. He paid a high price to adopt you into his family and call you his child, a co-heir with Christ. You matter a lot, but you're not the mission anymore. Because the doctor is there not for the healthy people, but for the sick people. And that's important for us to realize because I think there's this Christian culture nowadays where we have made it about us. Like the church exists primarily for us. That the mission is our betterment, our inspirement, our encouragement, our, uh, you know, we, what did we get out of this today? What, you know, I'm going to find a church that meets my needs. And that mentality kind of has it all wrong because Jesus said, that he didn't come for the healthy folks. They're healthy. <laughs> You're getting better. And uh, he's worried about the people who aren't getting better. So it's important for us as the church then, as the people who 
You know, if you've moved from sick unto death unto healthy unto life, then it's our job then to join in with the doctor's mission. We are to be on a mission instead of being the mission. Does that make sense? So that's a good reminder for us. And, and so we need to think about what is a good doctor's heart like. And, and, and then we want our heart to reflect the doctor's heart. So I want us to think for a minute about a good doctor and what their heart is like. You know, doctors like Dr. Pennebaker who said her heart broke when we turned down the treatment that she felt like would save us. What is a doctor's heart like? And let's pray that we can have that same heart. I asked a doctor about a doctor's heart this last week and I have it on video for you. Uh, most of you know this doctor. Uh, most of you know her, have known her her whole life, probably a lot of you have, uh, and you knew her as Mandy Cootie, uh, but she is now Dr. Amanda Witt, and so she comes to us, not live, but recently, <laughs> via video, and is going to share some thoughts on what makes a doctor's heart tick. And as you listen, I want you to think about God's heart and how it applies to this metaphor that we've been looking at. And think about how our heart needs to be similar to a doctor's heart as well. So, I think I first thought about being a doctor when I was about 12 or 13. Because I really enjoyed learning about how the body works and how everything's put together. And how many little details go into making us who we are. And I wanted to do something that was a service that I felt that was a ministry that I could participate in and would be meaningful to me. Um, I am a rehabilitation doctor, so I deal with children and adults that have brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, and nerve and muscle diseases like um, muscular dystrophy and ALS. And so. Um, I am often brokenhearted about the things I see and the stories I hear from patients. But I think what is the hardest to deal with is when um, a patient or their parents refuses to see um, what they have or refuses to believe what they have. And then I can't help them and they don't come back and, and what I have to offer them um, is useless to them. Um, for example, I had a 14-year-old girl that was in a four-wheeler accident and she had a brain injury um, both from the trauma and from loss of oxygen and her mother absolutely refused uh, the fact that she had had a brain injury. She didn't want to hear about it. She would get very upset with me if we talked about things that we would need to do for, their, for the child and she stopped coming. She, she took her off all her medicine a month out of the hospital and um, I, I don't know what's happened to her um, and so denying the problem didn't help the child. She prevented her from having care because she didn't want to accept it. Um, the other situation is if they're so angry about what happened that they can't get over that anger to then go on with their life or let their child go on with their lives. And that is a fair feeling at first. Everybody's angry. This is, this is a terrible situation. This is a tragedy. And nobody handles it perfectly, but if you can't get past being angry or if they're angry at me or angry at all the staff that walks in the room, then we can't help their child. Um, another child had a spinal cord injury 
and she's a paraplegic, but you can be independent as a paraplegic and go to the movies with your friends and go to their houses and go to the mall and do all those things teenagers should do. Um, and so I would ask her what she was doing for fun after she went home and her mother would say, well, she's in a wheelchair. And I, it just is defeating that I see potential and I want my children and adults to see their potential and what they can do and how they can heal and move forward even if I can't change the reality that they're facing from their injury. I think what brings me the greatest joy, even in um, sometimes sad situations where I can't make what has happened go away, I can't give them back the full function of their brain or their body, but I can be there for the patient and their families and help them see potential um, in their lives even after a tragedy or a trauma. And so I like it when I get that connection with the patient that little flash of a smile or a dimple from one of the children or seeing them run um, or walk to me after I had seen them in a coma. And then I can see them maybe six months, maybe a year later, walk into my clinic, their arms open, saying my name, just coming to hug me um, and seeing that progression and that sparkle come back, seeing who they are. Because um, I don't often get to know them before they were hurt and I see them when they're at their lowest. Just having that connection with who they are as a person and knowing that um, they see me as somebody who's trying to help. They let me help them um, and they know that I care about them. Um, and I can see that reflected in their face um, and knowing that we have a partnership moving forward and helping them to feel better and enjoy life and accomplish their goals. Isn't that interesting to think about in the context of what we're talking about today? Think about God's heart as the doctor. And, and uh, you know, when I, Mandy sent me those videos and some of that I hadn't even really thought about. And yet it makes so much sense. When you look around at the world, you see uh, so many people in denial of what they're dealing with. Uh, and it breaks a doctor's heart. I believe it breaks God's heart when he sees people that just deny that there's a problem. Refuse to accept it. Do you know anyone like that? Our heart should break for those folks too. We ought to be praying for those folks. We ought to be reaching out to those folks. We run into them all the time. God's heart breaks for that. Maybe you're here today and that's been you. you know, or maybe it's you now. I pray you would find the doctor and his medicine and his orders to be exactly what you need. Another thing that we see and we witness is people who are angry. Angry about their circumstances in life, whether it was brought on by their choices and their way of life or whether it was brought on by someone else's choices and their way of life. Whatever the root of the problem is, they're too angry about it to do anything to fix it. 
And like she was saying, you know, it's so frustrating because she sees potential. But they're too angry to see it. And even in our worst circumstances, you know, even when sin has made it a complete devastation and just wreck of our lives, God still sees potential there. So maybe you know someone that's there. And our hearts should break for those folks just as a doctor's heart and the doctor's heart does. And what brings the doctor the greatest joy? It's to see lives changed, right? To see someone who was crippled by whatever they were dealing with, who makes all this progress, and they're overjoyed about it, and therefore the doctor is overjoyed about it, and there's this sense of reward. And, and I think the thing that cheers God's heart the most is that life transformation that takes place when someone takes the medicine of grace, follows the orders of repentance, and the Holy Spirit comes alongside them and they helps them change, and they're like a new person. You ever known someone like that? Are you someone like that? Brings joy to God's heart, and God says that there's great rejoicing in heaven. When even one person does that and their life is changed. May we have the doctor's heart. I'm going to ask the band to come up and and we're going to lead you in a song in just a moment. But let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for being our healer. God, we all admit to needing your healing work in our lives. Many of us also need to admit that sometimes we pretended that the mission is still about us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you continue your work in our lives, even as we become passionate about what the doctor is passionate about. Give us your heart, O Lord. Send us out on your mission. May we be the hands and feet of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.